This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for April 15, 2012. The Gospel is taken from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. The message is by Father Rick Bowser. There's actually seven Sundays in Easter, and there'll be 50 days. We celebrate Easter just about as long as anything. But it's also known as the Sunday when the Easter baskets have been put away. The Easter outfits are in the closet. The colored eggs are now egg salad. Not much left of the chocolate bunnies or the chocolate eggs, which this year, of course, was dark chocolate, right? Because that's good for you. All right. Mm -hmm. And maybe most important of all, Now our Lenten fast is broken. We can eat the sweets, we can drink our coffee, we can sip on our wine, or at least not feel guilty about having done it during Lent. All in all, the second Sunday of Easter, everything is back to normal. Take a deep breath and relax. But here we are with today's scripture, and we're confronted with uh, Jesus somehow appearing to the ten. It says the twelve, but Judas is gone, and Thomas isn't there. And um, Thomas the doubt, we call him the doubter. Thomas the doubter gets wind that Jesus had showed up and had appeared to them, and, and basically he says, there's no way. No way. And then, as it turns out, Thomas actually was the forerunner of the Enlightenment 1,300 years later when he said, I need some empirical evidence. I have to see the nails in Jesus, the nail scars in Jesus' hand and the scar on his side from where he was pierced. He said, otherwise, I really don't buy all that stuff. But fast forward a couple thousand years to April 15, 2012, Sunday morning here at St. Andrews, and I'm talking to you about all this stuff. And so I ask you the question, do you believe all that stuff? That just happened a week ago? You see, that's probably why Thomas the Doubter is featured on the second Sunday of Easter. Because he sort of symbolizes where we all are. Did that really happen? Could that happen? I need some empirical evidence. However, I'm not going to focus on Thomas this morning. Like I said, you can sit back, relax. You've probably heard a thousand sermons on Thomas the Doubter. And as I read the scriptures from this morning, it would seem to me that the overwhelming theme is the theme of unity and fellowship within the community of believers. Acts chapter 4, Psalm 133 was our psalm actually for this morning, or one of them. Let me read that for you this morning. 
Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brethren live together in unity, like fine oil upon the head that runs down the beard, upon the beard of Aaron and runs down upon the collar of his robe. Is like the dew of Mount Hermon that falls upon the hills of Zion. For there the Lord has ordained the blessing, life forevermore. I think the there that they're talking about in verse 5 is the unity of the church and the believers. When brethren live together in unity. Our um, epistle this morning is from Acts chapter 4. Let me read some of that for you. Just to give you a flavor of what what trying to be said, what the scriptures are trying to teach us. Beginning at verse 32, all the many believers were in were one in heart and soul, and no one claimed any of his possessions for himself. But everyone shared everything he had, and with great power the disciples continued testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were all held in high regard, and no one among them was poor, since those who owned lands or houses and sold them and turned them over the proceeds to the be to the disciples to be distributed each according to his need. <clears throat> and then goes on to talk about what happened after that. And I can remember when I was um, a teenager and I was hearing those scriptures maybe for the first time, although I'd probably heard them a dozen, dozens of times before that, but I actually heard what was being said. Now, this was back in the 60s, and if you, some of you remember the 60s, it um, seemed like a thousand years ago, or at least a hundred years ago, but... Um, some ways it was, it is like a hundred years ago. But back in the 60s, I remember reading this because back in the 60s, we had our arch enemy was the evil empire, the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union had as its governing philosophy what we call communism. And also its twin sister socialism. Socialist, communism. And I was reading the scriptures and I said to myself, you mean Jesus is condoning socialism and communism? Because it says, like, you know, we're supposed to all sell everything, have everything in common, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, the answer to that question is no. Because you see, God would never condone a system of authority or government that is used to dominate other people. We're beginning, remember, to talk about unity and fellowship. God would never condone a system of authority, ecclesiastical or governmental, that would be used to dominate others, nor would he condone a system that levels everyone to somehow being on the same playing field, that we're all the same. When in fact, he, he created us all very uniquely with our own interests, gifts, and talents, and abilities. Now, you see, unity does not equal domination. 
Unity does not equal leveling or some tribal hurdle, herd, herding instinct. According to Acts 4, unity is the use of our own gifts and talents and abilities for the common good. What are your gifts? What are my gifts? Hopefully, preaching is one of my gifts, and so I'm here sharing that with you. But what are yours? Music, art, teaching, serving, what are they? I think that's what he's trying to talk about here in Acts chapter 4. That we aren't all the same. We're not necessarily all equal, but we are to provide for the common good voluntarily. We voluntarily provide for the common good out of our own resources, from our own giftings. It's bottom-up, not top-down. <clears throat> then in John, 1 John chapter 1, we read, it says, the word which gives us life, etc., etc., and then on down to verse 5, and this message which we have heard from him and proclaim to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him, um, no none. Excuse me, I skipped over where I wanted to be. Uh, the life appeared and we have seen it. We're testifying to it. There's the empirical evidence we're looking for. We're testifying to it and announcing to you eternal life. He was with the Father, Jesus, and he appeared to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you that you too may have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Yeshua the Messiah. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And if we claim we have fellowship with him while we're walking in darkness, more about fellowship and unity. If we claim we have fellowship with him while walking in darkness, we're lying. And we're not living out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of his son, Jesus, purifies us from all sin. We claim we don't have sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Truth is not in us. If we acknowledge our sins, then he's trustworthy and just and will forgive them and purify us from all wrongdoing. We claim we have not been sinning, we're making him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. I want to introduce a word to you as it relates to what they're talking about, unity, fellowship, and the destructiveness of sin. Because sin enters into the fellowship in the body. Sin enters in and begins to destroy and eat away at the fellowship and unity of the body. And the word I want to use here is the word context. Context. And it's reference to what he's saying here and also what Paul was saying in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means me. That means you. That means your spouse. That means your immediate family. That means your immediate circle of friends. That means everyone in this building. That means the grocery clerk who was rude to you. That means the guy who cut me off in traffic has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and begins to eat away and destroy our unity. And if we say we have no sin, we're a liar. But we have 
our reasons. If we sin, it's within the context of our lives and how we think. Sometimes we're aware of those sins. Sometimes we're not. And what John is saying here in 1 John is don't fall prey to what we in the psychological world call the fundamental attribution error. I'll say that again. I know, I'm getting a little psychological in there. The fundamental attribution error. Now here's what I mean. When I sin, when I say things, when I do things that are hurtful, when I'm detrimental to the fellowship or unity of the, of the community or relationship, I have my context. If you walked in my shoes, you'd understand why I said and did those things. However, when you sin, <clears throat> when you say things that are hurtful, detrimental to the fellowship, well, that's a result of malicious intent and a character flaw. <laughs> That's what we call the fundamental attribution error. That's what I'm calling context. We all sin within our own context. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's like when, when we both have the same surgery, when I have it, it's major surgery. When you have it, it's minor surgery. Right? <clears throat> John is saying all have sinned, but he's saying that sin is covered by our advocate, Jesus, the Messiah. That's what last week was all about. That's what last week was for our redemption and reconciliation, to cover the sins of context, our sins. And Jesus paid the price for those things. He paid the price for the sins of the whole world. In the Gospel this morning, John chapter 20. And he said, in the evening of that same day, the first week, when the disciples were gathered together and the door was locked out of fear of the of the Judeans, Jesus came and stood in the middle and said, Shalom. And having greeted them, he, he gave him some empirical evidence. He showed him the hands. He showed him his side. And they said, My Lord. And they weren't using the slang. They were saying, My Lord. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I am myself sending you. And having said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that has something to do with empirical evidence, but we'll get to that in a sec. He said, receive the Ruach HaKodesh. Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he went right on to say, if you forgive someone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you hold them, they are held. Now the whole Holy Spirit part is, that's for another day. I'm, maybe I'll get to preach on Pentecost Sunday. It's always a risk for Father Ron to let me preach on <laughs> Pentecost Sunday. 
Then he says, regarding unity, this whole thing about sins that you commit against one another, as it turns out, how you're going to deal with them is up to you. He said, if someone sins against you and you forgive them, their sins are forgiven. There's forgiveness here and in heaven. But if you hold them, they're held. However, I'm guessing that unity, if we hold those sins, will probably be affected in the process. Like the psalm said, unity is like the fine oil upon the head. It is like the dew from Mount Hermon, which, by the way, Mount Hermon, there's no mistake, I mean, they didn't just pick Mount Hermon in this particular scripture as it talks about unity. The dews of Mount Hermon, which is the highest point in all of Israel, is also probably the place where, remember Jacob's ladder? Jacob rested and had the dream, the ladder, where God and the angels came down, where there was an interface, where there was a connection, a unity, a fellowship on Mount Hermon between man and God. It was also probably the place of the transfiguration. Again, another God becoming man. God providing for the unity and the fellowship of the body. However, the very next words we say now, Thomas, which means a twin, one of the twelve, who wasn't with them, and he said, Unless I see, when I see, unless I see the marks in his hands and the place in his side, etc., etc. A week later, the disciples were once more in the room. And this time, Thomas was there. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Shalom. And and then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. Put your hand here. Don't be lacking in trust, but have trust. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, You've trusted because you've seen me. Blessed are those who do not see but trust anyway. Blessed are those who do not see, but who trust anyway. And he's not talking about necessarily, well, who is he talking about? Who are those people who have not seen, but believe? Exactly. That's us. You and me. We're who he's talking about. We're those that are blessed because we believe. And we haven't seen. Jesus is standing here, giving us that empirical evidence. But he did leave us with the Holy Spirit. He did leave us with evidence. He did leave us. He didn't leave us without his presence here with us. It's not about conjuring up some sort of belief, you know? Like you read it in a book. Like you, like somebody handed you a map of some foreign country and said, this is exactly what it looks like. And we're supposed to believe that and then we get there and it doesn't look like that at all. No, that's not about conjuring up some sort of belief. It's about the experience. That's why he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. That's why he said all have sinned. That's why he said we 